Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 23? We're going to be in verses 26 through 43 today. From that passage, I want to bring you a message that I call People in the Path of the Cross. We'll see ourselves somewhere. The Holy Spirit, I'm sure, designs it that way. So that as we examine the characters who are along the way of the cross, we see something of ourselves somewhere. We'll read the passage of Scripture and then I'll make some observations about the people who are there. And as they led him away, having laid hold on a certain Simon of Cyrene coming from the country, they put the cross upon him to carry behind Jesus. Now that means that Jesus was bearing the cross piece, much like the pictures that you often see. But he had been through quite a lot that night and early that morning. And as strong and as great as his strength was, he was beginning to collapse under the load of the cross, obviously. The Romans had the authority to pick somebody out of a crowd to help bear a load. That's why you read in the Beatitudes that if, if you're required to go one mile, go two. The Roman law was that uh, Romans should be as fresh for battle as possible. They had equipment they had to carry and if they were getting tired, they could just take anybody off the road and the law was they were required to carry that load for the Roman soldier for one mile. And the roads down which the Romans marched quite often had mile markers. And the Beatitudes was, if you're helping him, helping him help him beyond what he demands you to help him. So it was within Roman law to seize anybody, to just bring them out, commandeer them and bring them out and require that they help carry a load. And that's what happens here. Now you notice that the Greek says he carried the cross behind Jesus. So apparently he lifted up the lower part of the cross and carried that while Jesus, by Roman law of crucifixion, was still required to carry his cross as part of the humiliation along the way until they reached the place where they would uh, crucify him. Now a great multitude of the people were following him and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Then having turned to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never did bear and breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall upon us, and to the hills, cover us. For if in the green tree they do these things, what might take place in the dry? Now two other criminals were also being led away with him to be put to death. And when they came to the place called Skull, or the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and uh, one on the left. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. Then dividing his garments, they cast lots and the people stood looking. Then those of the rulers were mocking him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Then the soldiers coming near also mocked him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals having been hanged was speaking abusively at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Then answering the other was rebuking him saying, do you not even fear God that you're under the same judgment and we indeed receive it justly? For we are receiving worthy of what we did. But this man did nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in the paradise. Here are the people in the path of the cross. The gospel of Luke, Luke is so inspired. Those who were giving Luke the account uh, as he went back and examined the story of the Christ as directed and inspired by the Holy Spirit. These particular characters are grouped together and brought to our attention in the gospel of Luke. Those who were attending to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now bear in mind, this slaying of the Lamb of God was arranged in the mind of God according to the purpose and will of God before the foundation of the world. This is a big deal. <laughs> the crucifixion of the only begotten Son of God. This is a big part of the bringing together the covenant that was established between the Father and the Son in a realm beyond which we cannot know. But all of the universe has been moving to this time where the Christ of God would pay the ransom for his own, where he would redeem us. The only begotten Son of God, sinless Son of God, the only one uniquely thus qualified to give his life. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We all are fallen because we are of the race of Adam. That's something we can't help. And then when we are in Christ, we are made alive. Adam is the federal headship of our humanity. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, is the federal head of our glorified humanity. 
humanity. So then, as I said earlier, this is a big deal. I don't have words to describe the import and profundity of the moment of the crucifixion of Christ. But the Holy Spirit of God places these people. They have faces. They have names. God knows them. There they are. So let's look at them. First of all, the ruling room. We talked a little bit about this last time. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, the high priests, the Herodians, who were mentioned in another place, but still part of the whole thing, where, where these, these strange these strange alliances were made by, by, by groups within Judaism who otherwise despised each other, but they all came together about this. They hated Jesus and they wanted him dead. So they all come together. This is the ruling elite of religion. This is what religion does. Religion is always about what a person can do. It's, it's founded on the the strength and the will of a man, of man, behavior. It's, it's a man-made thing. Works, salvation, which of course is foreign uh, to the Bible. The ruling elite were ruling and they were elite because they could hold sway over the people via works salvation according to their rules. They were the ones who added the traditions of men onto the blessed and holy word of God. They were the ones who could define, for example, what work was on a Sabbath. How do you define that? Well, they said they could, and they had hundreds of ways to define what was work on the Sabbath? It became silly. There were other things like that that they had determined over a period of time and they, they held this. It was, it was a burden. Jesus cried out, if you're under a burden, you come to me. My load is light. I'll free you from that burden. We come to Jesus and Jesus takes care of everything. Here is the, the ruling elite of religion leading him. The Bible says in our passage, they, they led him away. They couldn't let him have access. They had to be the ones to tell people how to live. Religion has to impose its man-made rules. And we have to believe that the only way that we can get to heaven is to work our way there. And that, of course, would lead us away from Christ because Christ saves us. Christ bears the burden for us. Along the way then, first of all, there was the ruling elite of religion. Now then there's this character, a certain guy, it says. That's the Holy Spirit's word. A certain one, Simon of Cyrene. That means, that means he is meticulously identified. Matter of fact, his story is told in the whole of the New Testament, well, in, in Luke and in Mark and in Romans and in Acts, uh, actually twice in the book of Acts. So let's think about this guy. You know, my prayer is that 
somehow, and I believe this, I believe that this guy is like so many believers who don't really realize it. Let me tell you his story briefly. Mark, in Mark 15, talking about this same thing, the, the, the road to the cross, Mark tells us that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Okay, now, the Bible tells us that he came from the country. He just happened to be there. He just showed up for Passover. You know, okay, so here's the, here's the picture. The Holy Spirit inserting there in that place, telling us that he came in from the country means that he wasn't there for Palm Sunday. He wasn't there for all that stuff. He may or may not have been in the temple when Jesus was teaching. But here's the deal. He just, uh, having come from, first of all, North Africa, Simon is a Jewish name. He's a Jew who has settled in North Africa, Cyrene. Now, doing what Jews are supposed to do, he comes for the Passover time. And having been separated from the events in and around Jerusalem, he, he's coming in from the country. He doesn't apparently know everything that there is to know about Jesus. So he's, he's probably looking at the thousands of people wondering what in the world is all this about. And there goes this guy dragging his cross and he's probably stumbling and falling over and gathering his strength to stand back up and to stumble and to make his way. He just happens to be there having come in from the country and they grab him out of the crowd. There is no chance action in life. I believe that with all my heart. And we have to be constantly aware of how important every moment in life is to us as believers. Simon just happened to be there. And now he's gra grabbed out of the crowd and made to pick up the rear end of the cross and follow Jesus. But the cross had a profound effect on his life. It's seen in the rest of the New Testament where he and his family are briefly mentioned. So here is, here is uh, the father of Rufus and Alexander, a guy named Simon. He's a Jew. They're from North Africa. Just happens to come into town for the Passover stuff and has to go all the way to the skull. Golgotha has to go all the way to has to go all the way to Calvary. Has to go all the way to where Christ will be crucified. What was the exchange between Jesus and Simon? Don't know. Was there any? Don't know. But his life was changed because of the cross. Because he followed Jesus to the cross. He went with Jesus to the cross. And what happens in his life tells us that when Jesus died, Simon died on the cross. His story doesn't stop there, though. Mark says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
Acts chapter 2 tells us that on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews from Cyrene there, and they only, they only spoke the Cyrenian language. You know, that's thus the, the miraculous the miraculous gift of languages on the day of Pentecost when the curse of Babel was, was removed and everybody heard in his own language the gospel of Christ. So, so it was with Simon. But he, I believe, had already been affected by the cross and uh, by Jesus. Perhaps one of the 120 who were gathered in the upper room. So Cyrenians were there on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Now, the gospel of Mark and Paul's letter to the Romans were written in close proximity to one another. By the time Paul writes to the Romans, Rufus was a part of the church in Rome. So Paul ends in Romans 16. He, he is making his, his uh, he's, he's closing out his letter and he says, greet Rufus. An elect, choice, servant of the Lord. Now that comes from the Apostle Paul. That's by the Holy Spirit written to the Romans in the Bible that we have that carries us from generation to just this guy. This guy was important. He was really a special servant. How did he come to know Christ? He came to know Christ because in that day, and we've seen this in other passages, when the father comes to know Christ, he leads his household to Christ. And they were all about, you know, the, the, the centurion um, and uh, the Philippian jailer. He was baptized and his household. So Rufus has a father who is a believer, who was at the cross. Now, Rufus is a servant, a choice servant of the Lord in the church at Rome. And Paul continues in his, his benediction of the, of the letter. Greet Rufus, a choice servant in the Lord and his mother and mine. So the wife of Simon was a special servant to the church and had the opportunity to strengthen Paul. Paul somehow was nurtured by the ministry of probably Simon and his wife. But Simon's story, I don't think, stops there. We go on to Acts chapter 11. Now, Paul was sent out from the church at Antioch. You remember that? Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Silas. So the church at Antioch was a great missions-minded church. And they prayed about sending people out. And Acts chapter 11 says that men from Cyprus and Cyrene preached the Lord Jesus to Antioch. Simon obviously would have had a tremendous testimony to the Jews, not only after his experience at the cross, but probably his experience on the day of Pentecost as well. Why would you come all the way from North Africa to Jerusalem 
and not stay for Pentecost? Well, you wouldn't. So now he has this powerful testimony. And I'm sure he, if he didn't go himself, he at least had great influence in the fact that men from Cyrene went and preached at Antioch. Now, Antioch becomes a great church. They preached the name of the Lord Jesus. Antioch then sends Paul out to the world. Churches were planted. And Paul gives us most of the New Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So via the life and service and ministry of the Apostle Paul, the gospel goes into all of the world. And then when we read, for example, Thessalonians, we can see that the Thessalonians had great influence in the regions around them and churches were planted. Ephesus was no different. You read the seven churches in the Revelation. The, the other six churches were around and close to Ephesus and Ephesus was such a strong Bible teaching church that probably those other six churches close to Ephesus probably were influenced and maybe even planted by Ephesus. And all of that goes back to Paul, which goes back to Antioch, which goes back to men from Cyrene who preached the Lord Jesus Christ, which, which goes back to a servant probably and his a, a minister, a servant and his wife who even ministered to the apostle Paul such that Paul considered Mrs. Simon, his mother, took note of the great service of Rufus, one of the sons of Simon, which takes us back to Pentecost where there were men from Cyrene who received the Holy Spirit of God and would go and plant a church, which takes us back to this guy. Here's the point. God is always up to something through you. And he doesn't need your permission. And you don't have to have any strength to do it. God just does it. You live a godly life. You be sure and read the Bible and let other, know, let other people know that you believe the word of God and that you pray and that you're a Christian, that you're a believer and they'll watch you. And you'll leave influence in a way that you don't realize. You, you have no idea and you won't know till the judgment seat of Christ. But you may affect a life who affects another life. And that life could turn the world upside down like Paul did. Remember when that guy said of Paul, is this the man who's turned the world upside down? You never know. But we should ever be cognizant of how the Lord uses us in ways that we don't know. We don't understand. So here's this guy. And the Holy Spirit says this through Luke. He's a certain guy. <laughs> was a certain one. Simon of Cyrene. And there was this great multitude. Within that great multitude were these women. Now, some people are going to think, well, this was Mary Magdalene, Mary the Manoah. It's not. Because they're called daughters of Jerusalem. That's an Old Testament reference to women of Judaism. And they were among a group of people 
who sympathized with Jesus, but they became disappointed in Jesus because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. He wasn't the kind of Christ they expected him to be that they intended for him to be. Christ is the Christ of, of the Bible fulfilling at this point the Old Testament prophecies of his first coming and they're dying to pay my ransom, to become my sin. They're doing those things for me and all of us who are in Christ. They didn't want that. They wanted the commanding, victorious, regal, majestic king of the second coming because they didn't think they needed a savior. The cross meant nothing to them. And so they're crying and carrying on. Let me tell you something. Jesus was not impressed with crying. As a matter of fact, he makes an imperative. I won't go back to the Greek, but it's an imperative. He says, stop, stop crying. Shut up. That's what he says. Don't, don't cry for me. Good grief. I don't need your tears. I'm in charge of this thing. It don't look like it, but I am. Weep for yourselves. And you and I can put it in parentheses here because Christ has already spoken about it and taught it earlier in Luke. In his Olivet Discourse, Christ, parentheses. Because not too long from now, you're going to be killed by Romans for your Judaism. And because you put to death the Son of God. Because you have neglected, ignored, and rejected the day of your visitation. Your children are going to suffer. In that time, it's going to be be said you are blessed if you don't have children or nursing children or you're not pregnant. Because those are going to be the times that are the worst times up to this point that Jerusalem has ever seen. Not one stone left on another. The Romans are coming. And they're going to destroy you and they're going to put an end to Judaism. Jesus would say, because I have cursed it. Judaism is over. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because no matter how much you sympathize with Christ, no matter how much you think he ought to do something and he disappoints you because he didn't do it the way that you think he he should have done it, that doesn't make any... You better weep for yourselves at that point because judgment is coming. If you can't surrender yourself to Christ and if you can't forsake works, salvation, and self, if you cannot deny yourself the way Simon did, take up a cross and follow Christ, you're not worthy of Christ, but only judgment. So Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, the day will come and they'll ask for the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them. That's first of all found in um, Hosea 10. Hosea is is preaching, he's prophesying at the end, at the close of the life of the northern kingdom of Israel, preaching to Samaria, their capital city. And he's talking about how their sin will bring the Assyrians upon them and the Assyrians will destroy them. And they'll cry for the mountains to fall on them. The Assyrians were cruel. Oh, they were cruel. They didn't just kill you. They made you wish you were dead in the process of killing you. 
They'd cry for the mountains for the hills to cover them up. That same thing is repeated again in the Revelation 6. Because these same people, Israel, once regathered back into their land, the tribulation begins and in the throes of persecution and tribulation, people will start crying for the mountains to fall on in a time of because they're Christ rejectors. They keep, they keep crying out for something else instead of the only thing that can save them. That's the great multitude. So many are in that group. The Gentile power. Jesus was a strong, vibrant, fruitful force in the life of the people at that time. Look at all that he did. Not just that, but he's about to demonstrate the power of resurrection. And here's what he says to that multitude and to those daughters of Jerusalem. He said, look, if they're going to do this to a vibrant green tree that produces fruit and they don't care and they'll just cut down a, a living tree that's productive. If they'll do that to a green tree, what are they going to do to a nation that's dry? What are they going to do to an old tree that's not putting forth anything that's dried up, which is the nation of Israel? And so the times of the Gentiles continues until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The times of the nations, which is what we're in now, have been for a long time. And the times of the nations reaches the apex in the tribulation under the rule of the Antichrist who seeks to kill, destroy believers, most of whom are people out from Israel, Jews. Christ says, you know, if they're going to do this in a time of life, like you've seen it demonstrated, what do you think they're going to do when it's all dried up? They'll come after you. They'll destroy you. If this is your life, if this is what you want to put your life into, then you better cry for yourself. Weep for yourselves, not for me. Finally, the two criminals. You've, I'm sure, heard this story. No telling how many times it's been preached on, studied in Sunday school. You've read it yourself. One guy says, look, save yourself and save us while you're at it. He is still holding on to what the rest of Israel, probably those weeping daughters of Jerusalem, maybe he's still going to demonstrate his power by ripping himself off that cross and defeating her own. Maybe there's one thing left. And so this is the mind of the criminal. If you are the Christ, do your thing, man. Get off that cross and save us while you're at it. But the other one knew what it was all about. He said, wait a minute. This is an innocent man. Now the Bible points out in our passage that they had put above him an inscription. This is the king of the Jews. 
Now, the king of the Jews is Messiah. The king of the Jews is the king of the world and the kingdom, the great eternal kingdom of God. And this man just confesses, we're getting what we deserve. I'm a sinner. He doesn't deserve anything. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He acknowledges him. That's his profession of faith. He acknowledges him as a king who has a kingdom. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Truly I say to you, Jesus replied, today you'll be with me in the paradise. You've heard me talk about this before I know, but it, I didn't wear it out, so I'm going to talk about it again. Paradiso. The paradiso, the, the, the definite article is there in the Greek and it means the paradise, this special place. The word's only used um, three times in the Bible. Here, Paul writes about it to the Corinthians. I knew a man who was caught up to paradise, he said. And then it's in the letters to the, one of the churches, the Revelation, paradise. That's a, para means around, diocese means to wall about. So paradise is a, a special designation used in the oriental world of, of Jesus to describe the beautiful estate, the gardens that surrounded the king's castle. It was carefully kept so that fruit trees were there, always in bloom. Flowers, springs of waters, water fountains. The flowers and the blossoms from the fruit trees always gave a beautiful fragrance. The king would have many things on his mind and he would walk in that paradise to settle and calm himself and think. From time to time, his counselors would say to him, you know, there's somebody who did something very special for you in the work of the kingdom and you should invite him to come at that special time and let him be your special friend for the day and let him walk with you in your paradise. And that's what he would do. Jesus the king, responding to the one who wants to be in his kingdom, says, would you remember me in your kingdom? And the king, the king can do this. King can do anything. Said to him, I'm going to tell you this for a fact. Today, you and I are going to walk together in paradise. Now to me, Having studied it out, I believe that the paradisus, the paradiso, the vast expanse of beauty and wonder. And the Bible tells us that there are rivers of life branching off of the river of life coming down from the pinnacle of the New Jerusalem and splashing outward into what has to be the paradise of God. There are, more than, there are trees of life 
And so that countryside must be replete with those trees. They give a different fruit, a different blossom every month. It's, it's, it's difficult to imagine the beauty and the glory of such a place. His paradise. Jesus knew all about it. His throne is described as in the throne room at the top of the New Jerusalem. So if that's his throne room, the New Jerusalem must be his castle and paradise must be that which surrounds it in a wonderful and divine way. And here's what Jesus says. Here's a man, listen, this guy can't do anything. He can't get off there and read his Bible. He can't go to Sunday school. He can't listen to a sermon. He can't go get advice from a Sunday school teacher. He can't go to a preacher and ask him a question. He can't do a thing. He can't move. All he can do is this. Number one, confess that he's a guilty sinner. And number two, ask for mercy from the king. That's all he could do. And you know what this guy got? He got more than he bargained for. So then, okay. All of heaven is in a parade. The myriads of chariots of the angels Harps, trumpets from angels, maybe singing, shouting. It isn't Abraham. It isn't Isaac. It isn't David. It isn't, you know, who is walking with Jesus? That criminal. And none would have been more happy than the saints of God to see the power of God by His grace. What the blood of Christ can do. What the cross of Christ can do for a confessing sinner asking for mercy. People in the path of the cross You'll find yourself there somewhere. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Came into this world to save sinners. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Call on Him to save you and He'll save you. Come to Christ today. If He calls you, you'll know it. Just come take me by the hand. And say, I, I, want, I want Christ to be my Savior. Maybe here you're already a Christian and you want to come and be a part of this fellowship. You come. We'll take care of all the details of membership if that's what, what God wants in your life. You come. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation. Use it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, okay?